from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. It's been a month, to say the least, for environmental news in so-called Canada. This week, we'll bring you some of the big headlines, and maybe some you haven't caught yet, in our monthly news roundup episode. My name is Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwitsi, Wiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you are listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. You may have already seen the headlines about what is happening with the RCMP occupation of Wet'suwet'en territory in northern British Columbia. We will cover these land and water defender updates in more detail later in this episode, but while you listen to and read these stories and accounts of what is happening to the Indigenous peoples on their own land, it is important to remember back to all those promises and sentiments made on more celebratory days, like Indigenous Peoples Day, or the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Indigenous sovereignty is a critical part of reconciliation. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all the environmental news headlines you may have missed in the past month. For our first headline, here's Sarah Chitsas covering the ongoing storms in British Columbia. Between November 13th and 15th, southern BC was hit by a weather event called an atmospheric river, which caused major flooding, landslides, and other damage. A 14-day-long state of emergency was declared in BC on November 17th. So what is an atmospheric river? According to CBC, atmospheric rivers are large, narrow streams of water vapor that travel through the sky. Atmospheric rivers are not actually a new phenomena, and as many as 30 are seen in BC each year. But not all atmospheric rivers are quite as damaging or intense as the one that hit BC on November 13th to 15th of this year. So what made this atmospheric river so severe? According to CTV's article, How Climate Change Played a Role in the BC Floods, there were a combination of factors. As oceans warm up with climate change, more water evaporates and collects into atmospheric rivers, meaning that there is more water released when the atmospheric rivers reach land. The extreme heat and forest fires that BC experienced this summer burned many trees in BC and damaged soil health, which means that there were fewer trees to soak in moisture as it rained, and certain areas were more susceptible to landslides and major flooding. 
Finally, humans have been developing infrastructure in landscapes like bogs and former lakes that naturally absorb a lot of water, increasing their risk of flooding. Additionally, existing flood management structures in BC are not sufficient to protect areas that are at risk of flooding from damage like what was experienced this November. The province relies heavily on dikes to protect areas from flooding. However, the dikes in BC are inconsistently managed as they are managed by a mix of stakeholders, from governments to farmers. Ebwater Consulting released a report called Fraser River Basin Council Investigations in Support of Flood Strategy Development in British Columbia in May of 2021. This report highlighted the need for a new and effective flood management strategy to be developed and implemented in BC to replace the existing failing flood management governance, which has been criticized for years. In the case of the floods this November, Dike breaches in the Lower Mainland contributed to major flooding seen in the Sumas Prairie in Abbotsford, which was evacuated on November 16th. In total, according to the BC government, about 17,775 people have been evacuated as a result of this flooding. Included in that was the entire city of Merritt, which was evacuated on November 15th and has a population of about 7,000. Merritt was evacuated at the point where flood water caused the city's wastewater treatment plant to fail. Residents of Merritt are expected to be able to begin returning to Merritt on November 27th, although they will remain under evacuation alert as there are more atmospheric rivers expected in the region in the upcoming weeks. In addition to people's homes, farms, and businesses, this weather event contributed to damage, including landslides and washed out roads on all of the routes that lead to the Lower Mainland in BC, effectively cutting the region off from the rest of the province. Highway 7 and Highway 1 have been slowly reopening, although the state of roads is changing on an ongoing basis as highway crews repair the damage and other landslides and damage are uncovered. Additional road closures have been announced in preparation for more storms coming this week. Travel in flooded areas remains restricted to essential travel only. Up-to-date information about the state of specific routes in BC can be found at drivebc.ca. The Lower Mainland is currently under rainfall advisories as a series of atmospheric rivers are expected to arrive in the upcoming weeks, including another severe one forecasted for Thursday, December 2nd. Events like the floods in BC have widespread negative impacts ecologically, economically, and socially. In addition to thousands of farm animals having died in flooded farms, salmon spawning grounds being destroyed and disrupted, thousands of residents in flooded areas are facing the loss of their livelihood and homes. As climate change progresses, events like these floods will become increasingly severe and frequent. We will need to improve our flood mitigation and response strategies to account for this. Some ways this may be done include building flood-resistant homes that don't have drywall or carpeting, changing land use patterns, moving vulnerable people and infrastructure out of areas with high flood risks, and improving early warning systems for residents of at-risk areas. Thanks, Sarah. Now let's stay in British Columbia for our land and water defender updates for this month. In ongoing efforts to protect land and water, on November 14th, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs again served evacuation orders to Coastal Gaslink and its employees 
for continuing to occupy their traditional territory and attempting to construct a pipeline across it. The notice of evacuation came with an eight-hour window to comply, and a further two-hour extension was granted, yet only a handful of the 500 or so employees exited the territory. On November 16th, after the evacuation window had expired, Wet'suwet'en land defenders took control of a coastal gas link excavator and blocked the only access road into and out of the work camps and sovereign territory. Shortly after land defenders reasserted control of their territory, RCMP, acting under authority of the provincial government and a BC Supreme Court injunction, created an exclusion zone, preventing observers, supporters, or even critical supplies like heart medication to be delivered to the land defenders. At the same time the RCMP was denying access to land defenders, Coastal GasLink and representatives for the BC government made multiple statements about the safety of employees being their top priority. Yet, reports suggest that Coastal GasLink employees were never told about or informed of the evacuation order, or they would have left. Starting on November 18th and continuing into the next day, RCMP then used force to arrest land defenders, elders, matriarchs, and at least two media representatives at the Gidimden checkpoint and at Coyote Camp, a small camp located on a drill pad next to the Wedzinaqua or Maurice River. And by force, I mean violent, military-grade force. Documenting from inside structures at Camp Coyote, photojournalist Amber Bracken with the Narwhal and documentary filmmaker Michael Toledano with the CBC captured video and images of police in military gear circling buildings with firearms, police dogs barking, and the use of both a chainsaw and axe to gain access to the camp buildings. When identifying themselves as media, information which their production companies had already given to the RCMP, the arresting officers can be seen and heard repeating, quote, you're under arrest, end quote, and relieving both of their equipment without checking press credentials or any other information. These acts of violence are just the latest in the ongoing dispute between Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, whose sovereign rights and title have been repeatedly affirmed by Canadian law, yet ignored on the ground, and the provincial government on behalf of Coastal GasLink. This most recent act of aggression by the RCMP on behalf of Coastal GasLink has been met with criticism for the level of force and the disregard shown to Canadian journalists, whose rights have also been just affirmed by the BC Supreme Court following conduct by the RCMP in the Ferry Creek region. Practicing journalism is not a crime. Practicing free, prior, and informed consent is not a crime. Practicing one's Indigenous rights and asserting title in sovereign territory is not a crime. Yet, land defenders have been criminalized. The ongoing inconsistency between words and actions by the BC government, federal government, and companies like Coastal GasLink and their parent TC Energy suggests to me that land defenders will keep on defending and those in solidarity across the country will keep on in solidarity. On November 17th, the panel of three judges that were to make a decision regarding Teal Jones's appeal on the BC Supreme Court's previous decision not to extend the injunction at Ferry Creek decided to reserve their decision. There is no date set for the release of the judge's ruling, 
and the temporary injunction stopping land defenders and old-growth logging protesters from interfering with forestry activity remains in place. According to reporting by the CBC, land defenders and some protesters are preparing to stick it out at the remaining camps in Ferry Creek, even through the storms and coming winter weather. Police are still present, enforcing the injunction and arresting people. To date, more than 1,100 people have been arrested. Capital Daily and CTV News Vancouver Island received an RCMP document through a Freedom of Information request that shows the cost of enforcing the court injunction at Ferry Creek. According to the document, the RCMP has spent more than $3.7 million as of August 31st of this year on enforcement. Over $2 million of that was spent on personnel. Solidarity actions for the land defenders and protesters at Ferry Creek continue, with one taking place in downtown Victoria on November 25th. The Line 3 Pipeline Replacement Project, or Line 93, came into service on October 1st. In an article for Indian Country Today, Mary Annette Pember reports on some of the victories that the water protectors are proud of, despite the pipeline project being completed amidst widespread opposition. According to the article, Enbridge has framed the creation of this pipeline replacement project as safety-based, but the new Line 93 pipeline is wider, allowing it to carry oil that Line 3 could not. Additionally, there have been spills and pierced aquifers, and an attorney for the White Earth Band of Ojibwe says that the pipeline construction has exacerbated low water levels and endangered the health of wild rice in the area. Indigenous advocacy organizations such as Honor the Earth, Indigenous Environmental Network, and other organizers say that the fight against Line 3 helped to bring the world's attention to the corporate push to build fossil fuel projects against the will of Indigenous peoples, civilians, and at the expense of the environment. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a volunteer-run and listener-powered radio station in so-called Edmonton, Alberta. Thank you so much to all of our listeners who supported us during our annual fund drive earlier this month. Thanks to you, we can keep sharing environmental news, stories, and ideas. This week, we are bringing you the environmental news headlines from the past month. Next up, here's Sonic Patel covering some of the main discussion topics and outcomes of COP26, which took place this month in Scotland. Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. This November, the COP26 conference was held in Glasgow, Scotland. Did you forget your backstage pass? Don't worry. Terra Informa has you covered. Here are some of the biggest headlines from this year's climate conference. So, what exactly is a COP, and why have they made so many of them? Each year, the United Nations brings almost every country together to meet, negotiate, and collaborate about climate change. The United Nations has done this 26 times, hence the 26th part of the name. And COP stands for Conference of the Parties which 
kind of makes you question what the criteria for being part of the acronym really is. Anyways, COP meetings are really important. The global nature of the climate crisis requires international collaboration. Without it, countries might be hesitant to invest in carbon reduction if they feel like other countries aren't pulling their weight. COP is the avenue that allows these international agreements to occur. In 2015, the COP21 conference took place in Paris and was the birthplace of the Paris Agreement, where the attending nations agreed to commit to reducing emissions to keep the average global temperature increase below 2 degrees Celsius, and preferably aim for a 1.5 degree increase. Each country under the Paris Agreement committed to bringing forward a national plan in five years. And that was, wouldn't you guess, six years ago. They had to delay it for the pandemic. So COP26 is a pretty big deal. The action set in the conference will determine the crucial next decades of climate action that, in turn, will determine the scale of the climate crisis. COP26 resulted in a new global agreement on climate change, the Glasgow Climate Pact, a pledge to keep carbon emissions consistent with a 1.5 degree global temperature increase, the more ambitious target from the Paris Agreement. This is good news especially since current national pledges will only limit warming to 2.7 degrees. Except that the Glasgow Climate Pact is not legally binding, so there's no mechanisms to ensure countries actually stick to their targets. Most commitments will be self-policed, and only a few countries are actually making their pledges legally binding. Also agreed to at COP was an agreement to reduce our coal use, which produces about 40% of our annual carbon emissions. This is also great news, except that the text of the pact was severely watered down to say countries were phasing down, not phasing out coal. This change came after China and India, two countries that use a lot of coal pushed for weaker language. Something that world leaders did agree on was to phase out fossil fuel subsidies, which are tax breaks, funding, and other methods that artificially lower the price of carbon-intensive fossil fuel sources. The United Nations predicts that eliminating all fossil fuel subsidies would reduce global carbon emissions by 10% by 2030. So getting a commitment to get rid of these subsidies is great news, except they never set any firm deadlines for when exactly this needs to happen. And just like with coal, the language of the agreement was watered down. So countries were actually committing to eliminate, quote, inefficient subsidies, end quote. What is an inefficient subsidy? It's a vague term, that is up to the individual countries to define. Maybe they could get some help from one of the 500 lobbyists from over 100 fossil fuel companies that happened to be in Glasgow for COP26. Wow, what a coincidence that there was no strong commitment to reduce fossil fuel subsidies. Who would have guessed? Lots of people, I imagine.
So we could be looking at several more years of governments propping up the fossil fuel industry, keeping prices low and emissions ongoing. And with precious few years left to get carbon emissions down, to be consistent with a 1.5 degree future, a lack of a hard deadline in a pact that is already not binding is not a good sign. Catherine Ebro, a member of Canada's net zero advisory body, called the watered down language, quote, weasel words, unquote, which I think is a disservice to the noble weasel who are fierce and courageous predators. The Glasgow Climate Pact also contains a pledge to fund the least wealthy nations as they transition their energy sources and cope with the effects of climate change. Many of these countries will face very significant climate change impacts, while having contributed very few greenhouse gas emissions. So this pledge helps protect a lot of people, helps reduce the emissions of these growing nations, and resolves a huge climate equity issue which is great news, except that this new promise comes shortly after an unfilled one. In 2009, the developed world promised $100 billion by 2020 for less developed nations. That target was not reached. And by 2018, the majority of climate action money for developing countries was in the form of loans rather than grants contributing to major debt issues in some of these nations. The new pledges from Glasgow promise $96 billion annually by 2023, and a group representing the less developed nations are not happy about the delay and the unmet former pledge, saying that 2023 is not soon enough, and some think it's too little money altogether, wanting to include a request for more finances to deal with the damages of climate change, as compensation for the harm done by the greenhouse gas emissions produced mostly by industrialized countries. There was some discussion about a more substantial transfer that did not end up making it into the final pact. More than 100 countries, representing about 85% of the world's forests, promised to stop and reverse deforestation by 2030. This is vitally important to our efforts to limit climate change, as forests can act as huge carbon sinks when undamaged. So good news, right? Except globally, we don't have a great track record on international agreements to stop deforestation. In 2014, the United Nations announced an effort to reduce deforestation by half by 2020 and end it altogether by 2030. In 2017, they said that forested land would increase by 3% by 2030. While the 2020 target did not happen, and we don't appear to be on track to end deforestation by 2030. So while promises are a good sign, they don't have the best track record. And here's hoping the commitment this year has better follow through. This year's agreement does reinforce the role of Indigenous peoples as land defenders, which is an excellent opportunity to protect our forested lands. Now, let's talk about methane. 
Methane, or CH4, is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. One pound of methane has 25 times the global warming potential of one pound of carbon dioxide. So the COP26 scheme to cut 30% of methane emissions by 2030 that more than 100 countries agree to is great news. And sure, three of the biggest emitters in China, Russia, and India didn't sign on, but that's, uh, well, that's not good. COP26 also saw a major commitment to electrifying transportation. More than 30 countries and six automakers pledged to end the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles, like those that run on gasoline and diesel by 2040. With transportation being one of the largest sources of emissions, electric vehicles can have a big impact on reducing greenhouse gas production. This is good news. Except if you were to ask the protesters at the summit who challenged the environmental benefits of electric vehicles. While much better than internal combustion engine vehicles, electric vehicles still take up a lot of space, particularly in urban areas. They do require lithium to be mined for their batteries. They can make cycling and transit systems less used and less invested in, and they create less, but still some, air pollution. A pro-cycling protest was held outside COP26, on the day designated for transportation discussions. And justifiably so, considering it doesn't even seem like active transportation, like biking and walking, was being discussed, despite the numerous environmental, economic, and social benefits it has. So there were some of the biggest headlines from COP this year. It's been kind of a mixed bag. The good, countries are increasingly recognizing the need for climate action and are pushing for more ambitious targets. The Glasgow Climate Pact might not be perfect, but it is a step up from Paris, and a step in the right direction. The bad, the language of the pact is not very strong, and it's apparent that countries are still not fully ready to move away from carbon-intensive energy and lifestyles. And the ugly, the Climate Action Tracker projects that the new Glasgow Climate Pact pledges are not consistent with a 1.5 degree warming. Until there is alignment on a policy level, a promise to act is not enough. We need to do more, and we need to do it fast. Notable climate activist Greta Thunberg called COP26 a failure, saying, quote, it should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place, end quote. Next year's COP summit is in Egypt, and I, for one, hope that we do not need to hear any accepts next year. For Terra Informa, this has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. And thank you, dear listeners, for all of your support during Fun Drive earlier this month. 
This show and all the other radical programming on CJSR wouldn't exist without your support. If you like what you heard in today's episode, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>